Okay, Doc, I've got the drugs ready for this RSI. You wanted propofol and sucks, is that right? Sorry? You don't want propofol and sucks. You want rocuronium and ketamine. <sighs> Not what you used last week. Why can't these doctors ever make up their mind? Let's find out. I think we've all been there, haven't we? We get sent down to A&E or to the ward where a patient needs intubating and the registrar or the consultant says to you, get my drugs ready for me and I'll be down in a minute. So you prepare those drugs all very carefully. Then they turn up and say, no, I don't want those. I want this instead. And they always do it for very sound reasons. And that's what I want to talk about now. So I got together with one of the consultants I work with in intensive care and I've given him a little test and he's answered lots of questions for us. So I hope you found this useful. I certainly did. Um, So let's go ahead and listen. So I just want to um, start by introducing my very good friend, Nitin Aurora, who has kindly agreed to come and help us break down some of the mysteries of the drugs that various anaesthetists and intensivists give when RSIing patients and many times there's very good reasons for giving a variety of drugs Um, but really I think probably one of the things that might help you as an audience understand and certainly myself um, some of the reasons why they choose some of the the drugs that they do because uh, if I'm quite honest with you I've given up predicting what drug my anaesthetist is going to ask me for do generally get it right but sometimes I'm quite surprised by it So Nitin is a consultant uh, anaesthetist and intensive care consultant as well at the hospital I work at in the heart of England. Um, And Nitin's been in post there for what, Uh, three years now? Nearly four years now. Is it really as long as that? Gosh, it's a long time. Absolutely. So what's your background, Nitin? Where have you been and, and where have you come from? Right. Okay. So I did my medicine in India and um, then I was planning to do medicine with intensive care. Um, There was, at that point, no training program for intensive care in India. So I came to the UK. Uh, Within a couple of years, I'd experienced anesthetics, uh, which at that point I thought was a bridge to doing intensive care and going back to medicine. But once experienced, I couldn't quite leave anesthetics. It was so civilized compared to being a medical registrar. (laughs) And then I stayed on. Um, So I did my anesthetic training and my my intensive care dual accreditation. And then just under four years ago, I started a job here as a consultant at the Heart of England uh, NHS Trust. Uh, uh, My interests within the field of intensive care include clinical governance and audit but mainly center around the soft fluffy bits so stress in intensive care itu delirium uh, ptsd follow-up rehab that sort of stuff so what kind of progress have you made towards those now do you think i know it's a it's a long hard road to furrow really isn't it it's it's difficult because Certainly from my experience, it's probably, to use the phrase, it's the Cinderella part of our service, isn't it? It's perhaps something we don't pay nearly enough attention to. I agree. We don't really pay enough attention to it. Uh, What we've managed to do is raise the profile of the service. So we haven't managed to get any money yet, but we are doing regular uh, meetups for post-ICU patients. We're doing follow-up clinic about once a month, once every six weeks, depending on how much demand there is. Uh, It is totally unfunded at the minute, so we're just doing it in our own time. And uh, what we've succeeded in doing is raising the profile. For instance, at recent Band 6 interviews, a significant number of nursing staff 
identified delirium scoring and uh, delirium management as one of the major areas they would like to see improved. So the word is actually getting out there, even though we haven't got there yet. And there's other things like noise on intensive care, which is a significant contributor to delirium. That we've Mm. audited, we found that one of our units is particularly noisy. And as of two days ago, we've got noise activated, visible light signs on the walls, uh, which are activated at 65 and 75 decibels. And so there will be a very visual reminder to everyone. Uh, And the sign basically glows blue and it says, the lettering says, shh, quiet zone. Excellent. Oh, that's great. Where is that? At Heartlands? That is at Heartlands, yes. It went live only two days ago. Wow. Okay. And presumably you, are you in the process of auditing the effects of that? Uh, We will give it two or three weeks and then start auditing. That's something for another time, I think. Absolutely. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll catch up with you on that one. So the reasons I wanted to um, talk to you about this is because, like I said at the introduction, there's a lot of um, ver- there's a, quite a variation on the uh, drugs that are used. Perhaps, Nitin, the first thing I could ask you to do is just to talk through us the essential elements of any RSI as far as the drugs are concerned. What drugs... Or in a generic kind of way, which generic drugs do you need to have to hand when you're about to RSI somebody? Okay. Now, if you ask most people, they will say there are two drugs that are essential. You need a hypnotic agent to send the patient off to sleep and you need a fast acting muscle relaxant. The hypnotic agents most people use tend to be things like thio or propofol or ketamine and the muscle relaxant tends to be Succimethonium, for most cases classically, occasionally you'll see people using rocuronium. Now, I would add in a third drug, which is the most important drug. The third drug that you start giving first up is oxygen. So pre-oxygenation is in many ways the most important part of rapid sequence. So I would say you need three drugs, oxygen, a hypnotic and a muscle relaxant. Okay. Perhaps one of the questions I can ask that occurred to me today, because I, I wasn't absolutely getting the clearest of answer, what's the difference between a hypnotic and a sedative? In practical terms, nothing. Okay. Uh, but a, a hypnotic sends you into a deeper sleep than a sedative. But in as far as I understand, there is no major difference. Okay, so it's 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 almost it's almost semantics then, isn't it, from our point of view for the discussion we're having now? Absolutely. So we're talking about three drugs. So we've talked about oxygen and we've talked about the need to pre-oxygenate the patient. And what are the guidelines saying about pre-oxygenation now? Are we clamping this mask firmly to the patient's patient's face and not letting it move for those three minutes? Or are we being a bit more casual about it than that? If you want to do it properly, there are two processes involved here. So pre-oxygenation You can also think of pre-oxygenation as denitrogenation. Normally, when you're breathing air, nearly 80% of air is nitrogen. So basically, your lungs are filled with lots and lots of nitrogen, a little bit of CO2, and uh, alveoli have about 15% oxygen. What you are aiming to do is, over a period of about two to three minutes, or a number of deep breaths taken by the patient, you're aiming to fill the FRC, so the functional residual capacity of the lung, with oxygen and take most of that nitrogen away. Traditionally, we've always said you need to clamp the oxygen mask tightly onto the patient's face 
because if you allow any air to be entrained on the sides, if there is a major leak, then you will get poor efficiency of your pre-oxygenation. And that still holds true. And if you want to do a good job with pre-oxygenating the patient, you definitely need to put a mask on. Now, a useful guide is to attach CO2, uh, an entitled CO2 trace, uh, and watch it. You should be able to get a good entitled CO2 trace while you're clamping the mask onto the patient's face. It doesn't have to be very forceful. If the patient's conscious enough, you can let the patient hold it on, just guiding them gently. And I find, find that gives better results in, in terms of patient comfort and patient satisfaction. But you definitely need to be able to get the entire CO2. And a useful thing is to just be just if you have a gas analyzer. So if you have an anesthetic room monitor, for instance, you should be able to see a measured FiO2, but also a measured entire oxygen. And once the entire oxygen is above 85 or 90 percent, then you know that you've actually got really effective pre-oxygenation. And what benefits does that give you as the intubator? The major benefit of uh, pre-oxygenation uh, is around time that it gives you. Because uh, classically, when we did rapid sequence induction, we would give the drugs, uh, keep the mask on, and then go for intubation. Now, your FRC, once it's fully filled with oxygen, so you'd be talking two and a half liters or something like that, and your baseline oxygen consumption is going to be roughly 250 mils of oxygen a minute. So theoretically, adding on a little bit of apneic oxygenation, you are looking at 10 to 15 minutes of apneic time in an ideal situation. If you have a young, fit, healthy patient who's undergoing a rapid sequence induction. In our sick elderly population, this time may be significantly reduced, but what we know for sure is if you do not pre-oxygenate, that time may only be a few seconds, whereas if you've pre-oxygenated, you may have a few minutes to play with. Just to go take you back a few steps there, Nitin, as well, because you've mentioned it and some of my listeners may not understand the term, apneic oxygenation. What does that mean? Okay, so what apneic oxygenation basically means is passive flow of oxygen. So if you have a patient who is not breathing, but you've clamped an oxygen mask onto their face, so as oxygen is absorbed from the alveoli into the blood and CO2 is released from the blood into the alveoli, you get passive diffusion of uh, CO2 upwards in the airway and oxygen downwards in the airway. This is apneic uh, oxygenation and uh, there are some people who say it does not have a major effect, but actually if you do it properly and if you put the mask on with a good seal, it does seem to work. There are papers that have shown that it it can add a f good few minutes to the time that the patient uh, starts to desaturate. And so in your own practice, Nitin, when you're RSIing, are you sticking nasal cannula on people's faces and cranking it up to 15 litres? Uh, no. No? No. Why not? Because what I find is if you put nasal cannula on and crank it to 15 litres, then you can't get a great seal with the mask. Right. That's the only reason. Though I know that there are people that have that say that it actually works really well. But personally, I find that putting nasal cannula along with the mask doesn't give a great seal in my hands. Uh, and trying to put nasal cannula on when you take the mask away, uh, it just wastes valuable seconds that you could otherwise be using uh, for laryngoscopy. So 
that that's how I've chosen to do it in my practice. Okay. Um, I mean, presumably you've seen people do it differently, though, because for various reasons, people have their preferences, don't they? So Absolutely. And actually, yeah. as time has gone by over the last 10 years, I have become a firm convert to actually gentle bagging during RSI if I'm worried that the patient's going to desaturate. it. Right. OK, that's interesting. And uh, we might come back to that, Nitin, because that's that's a, that's a whole new discussion, isn't it? Because class, classical teaching says that you don't bag the patient in the RSI at all. I was I was firmly reprimanded the first time I tried to and I've never done it since. So that's that's an interesting debate. OK, let's just move on a step. Right. We've pre-oxygenated the patient. We've given them their big breaths or their three minutes and we're happy that they're they've washed out all that nitrogen we're now going to and, and this might sound like an obvious question but i think my audience may appreciate some clarity as to exactly why we're do, what we're doing next is is done why do we sedate the patient we are sedating the patient to send them off to sleep so that we can then place a tube in their trachea uh, which will help us to breathe for them and they will then need muscle relaxation as well because that way you can easily get uh, the tube in. The reasons for intubating the patient and then mechanically ventilating the patient could be, as in everything to do with intensive care, we just go from A to E. So it could be for airway protection. So for instance, you've got someone who's got facial fractures or facial burns and you're worried they're going to lose their airway. It could be for B reasons or breathing reasons. So someone in respiratory failure, for instance, it could be for C reasons, so circulatory reasons, minimizing oxygen consumption, optimizing oxygen delivery, someone in sepsis, for instance. It could be D reasons. So D reason would be, for instance, someone with traumatic brain injury with uh, a reduced GCS. It could be for E reasons. So, for instance, you've got someone with malignant hypothermia or neurolept malignant syndrome with a temperature of 42 and you need to control the temperature and to control the temperature you've actually got to sedate them then start cooling them so there could be a variety of reasons from a to e so the sedation physiologically um sedation hypnotic agent let's use those words interchangeably for our discussion today rather than get into the semantics of it okay but the sedation stroke hypnotic agent as well as obviously sedating the patient and making them more compliant what other effects physiologically might they have that are beneficial to the anesthetist it is possible if you choose your hypnotic agent well uh, you could have other beneficial effects for instance, you could cause a little bit of relaxation. You could have a degree of lessening of uh, laryngeal reflexes. If the patient has a high blood pressure to begin with, actually most hypnotic agents will bring that blood pressure down and that would help. And then depending on, again, which one you use, uh, for instance, if you use ketamine in bronchial asthma, you could actually uh, help with breaking the bronchospasm with the hypnotic agent. Mm -hmm. So... Different hypnotic agents will, of course, have different positive and negative features. And I'll be honest now and tell you that for most hypnotic agents, the positive feature is they cause induction of anesthesia and everything else tends to be a negative feature, merely centering around their cardiovascular effects. Yeah. OK. Whether that be an increase or a decrease in blood pressure, yes. either way, yeah. sometimes can be detrimental. OK. Right. We, we've oxygenated. We've we've sedated. Uh, we've made this patient go to sleep. Um, now we're going to give them the muscle relaxant. Now, again, here, 
I was taught the classical muscle relaxant to give in an RSI is sucks. Um, without moving further forward, why do you give sucks as why, why is sucks talked about as being the, the first drug of choice uh, with obviously some provisos? But let's let's assume their potassium isn't up in the sky, for example. Okay, so as long as you don't have an obvious contraindication to sucks, so as you said, potassium being high or previous anaphylaxis to sucks or sucks apnea. As long as you have, don't have those obvious contraindications, sucks is actually a great muscle relaxant. The advantages of sucks are it works predictably and quickly. It works more quickly than practically any other muscle relaxant known to us until recently. Rocketone is almost as fast, but still not as great as sucks. And the big great thing about sucks is that it wears off rapidly and predictably in most people as well. So five to six minutes after you've given it, it will wear off because it is degraded by enzymes in the blood. So why is that an advantage, Nitin? Surely we want this patient to stay paralysed, don't we? Now we've got them still, let's keep them that way. Absolutely. Ideally, that's what you would do. However, uh, in a very small minority of people, but still very important, you will find that you have a difficult airway you have sedated the patient, you've paralyzed the patient, and now you try and place an endotracheal tube, and you find you cannot. You follow the difficult airway society guidelines, you go through the different steps, so you try different laryngoscopy blades, you try video laryngoscopy, you try other sorts of laryngoscopes, or, uh, and then you try fiber optic scope, and you still cannot get a tube in. If you're really unlucky, you get into the situation where you cannot intubate and you cannot oxygenate. So even mask ventilation is a problem. And the safest thing at that point is to wake the patient up and then regroup, get fresh equipment, get another pair of hands, get someone more experienced, and then try again. And the great thing about sucks is that it will reliably, in most people, wear off in five to six minutes and hopefully if you've done your pre-oxygenation well you will have five or six minutes to play with while the patient's sats are still reasonable while they're still not going blue and then you have the option of waking them up and the sucks wears off and they wake up and they're still breathing and they're still alive lovely which is everyone's happy then aren't they hopefully well yes except the patient who's not so happy at being woken up without the surgery okay i want to talk about the other paralyzing agents but i want to talk about them in context so we'll come to those in a little while because what i want to do now nitin and i gave you a heads up about this so hopefully uh, you're ready for these is i'm going to give you three scenarios and i want you to talk us through the drugs that you would choose and Possibly, and I know this isn't necessarily easy, but anticipate some other anaesthetists might also choose and the reasons that they've given those. So why don't we start with what I often see as probably one of the most regular patients for the anaesthetist to come across is the type 2 respiratory failure. So I'll give you an example. We've got Mrs. Jones. She's a 78-year-old lady who has been a long-term smoker. She's been emphysematous for a long time. She's had numerous admissions to hospital with type 2 respiratory failure, which had often been managed with NIV. Now, the physios have tried NIV. The NIV is now failing. Uh, pH is down below 
7.05, let's say. It's certainly nowhere near 7.15. Um, so her pH is falling, her CO2 is climbing, she's tiring, more importantly, and her GCS is starting to drop. Now, let's assume for a minute that her blood pressure is reasonably okay um, and it's not a concern. I, 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 I appreciate that it may be a concern if we do this the wrong way. What are you going to be asking me to prepare for you? Okay, so we have a patient who's in type 2 respiratory failure, COPD, with a very low pH. Now, this is likely to be challenging. We're going to have, have we done an airway assessment? Is the airway anticipated to be easy? No, her airway's okay. We, we've done our lemon. Her airway's absolutely fine. We're not worried about her airway. Fantastic. Okay, so our challenges are going to be challenges around breathing, because she's already very acidotic, and around circulation. Even though her blood pressure is okay now, she's COPD. She's probably a little bit dehydrated. She's got acidosis, which is going to cause a degree of cardioplegia, and we are possibly going to have cardiovascular challenges while we go to sleep. But in this case, even though classical practice would be to just go with sucks, uh, to go with thio and sucks, I would be, in my personal practice, I would be tempted to go for a modified rapid sequence induction and go with fentanyl, propofol and sucks. Talk to me about fentanyl. Why are we giving her fentanyl? Okay. Fentanyl is a short-acting opioid. Now, traditionally, We've always avoided opioids in rapid sequence induction. But actually, the availability of short-acting, reliably short-acting opioids like alfentanil and fentanyl allows us to give patients these opioids. And this helps to reduce the... Uh, so they have a co-anesthetic, co-induction agent effect. And so what happens is they help you to reduce the dose of hypnotic you're going to have to use. These drugs also reduce the laryngeal reflexes. So you find that your patient is significantly less likely to cough or put up their blood pressure uh, during intubation. And so I would generally use some kind of an, a short-acting opioid, fentanyl or alfentanyl, for most of my rapid sequence inductions today. Because I've, I've often debated the difference between giving fentanyl and alfentanyl. It depends on who's doing it. So alfentanyl was the great drug in the late 80s, early 90s. Fentanyl came along a little bit after that. And depending on when you were a registrar, you stick with what you used to use. In the short term, there's no real difference. If you're giving one small ampule, so a milligram of alfentanyl versus 100 micrograms of fentanyl, they will both wear off reliably. If you give larger doses, you find that fentanyl tends to accumulate in the body and its half-life gets longer, whereas alfentanyl doesn't tend to accumulate. And even with infusions for days, you still have a relatively short half-life for no more than a couple of hours, uh, right. which is why on our ITU, we tend to use alfentanyl infusions rather than fentanyl infusions. Um, so we've given the, the, the fentanyl um, because we want to reduce the dosage of the sedative hypnotic that we're giving yes. afterwards. Is that the main reason? Uh, and does it also uh, help with an obtunded airway? Is it going to make a, an airway easier to manage as well, or does it not affect that? It is likely to make an airway easier to manage. Uh, it is difficult to quantify the effect, of course, but it is likely to make the airway easier to manage. 
So most people uh, these days will give an, a short-acting opioid during RSI. Okay, so you're going to give that uh, immediately before you give the sedative? Are you just going to give the, the fentanyl and then immediately give the sedative? Or do you give it a few minutes to have some effect? If it's a normal induction, I give it a couple of minutes early. In a rapid sequence induction, I would tend to give it less than 30 seconds early. So I would give it and follow it up very quickly afterwards with the hypnotic agent. Why have you opted for propofol for this patient in particular? There's basically one major reason. We use propofol all the time in theatres and ITU. Therefore, propofol is the drug that most of us use regularly, most of us are comfortable with, most of us understand very well, and it works well in most hands. Thiopentone, uh, while the classic RSI drug and still used regularly for RSI in pregnant patients, has fallen out of favor a little bit, and it's hardly ever used apart from uh, the RSI, and therefore you find that people are less likely to be skilled in its use, and Thio also has the advantage of a faster induction time than propofol, but the disadvantage is that because you don't use it regularly, so you are less likely to be able to, be able to titrate it effectively. And mm. actually, it doesn't matter what induction agent you use in many ways. What matters is how you use it, how you titrate it, and how you definitely never, ever go for classical rapid sequence in a sick patient because classical rapid sequence involves a pre-calculated dose of three to five milligrams of thio or two milligrams per kilo of, of propofol and you just give it bang it in and then follow it up by with a muscle relaxant and that sort of dose is almost guaranteed to cause cardiovascular collapse in a sick patient Okay, so this 78-year-old lady with COPD, you're giving her propofol. You can't give her the drug because you're busy managing the head end. I'm the assistant with the Ventolon in my hand. How much do you want me to give and how quickly? One useful thing that I was taught about 10 years ago, which still holds true, is when you're managing a sick patient, draw up 1% propofol in two 10-mil syringes rather than a 20-mil syringe. Yeah. Because the temptation always is to give half of the syringe and then look up and start titrating. Yeah. So if you have a 10 mil syringe, you're going to give 50 milligrams, which is not going to be too much for almost anyone. And mm. then slow down and start waiting for the patient to go off to sleep. Uh, so that is what I would recommend. Take up the 10 mil syringe of 1% propofol. So that's 100 milligrams of propofol. And then give... 40 or 50 milligrams, wait a few seconds and then give another couple of mils, wait a few more seconds. When the patient starts closing their eyes, so we are actually titrating to effect. And when the patient closes their eyes, then you follow up with sucks. And all of this is, of course, going into a big, big menthol with a running drip. So you give, you, you just let me just run through that again. You give five mils of 1% yes. um, as a bolus. Mm. Then you give another five mils fairly quickly after no i wouldn't no sorry can i can i backtrack five yeah five mils the first 50 milligrams goes in quickly and after yeah. that you just titrate a couple of mils at a time again okay. it depends very much on what your patient is what condition they're in so if this wasn't a frail little 78 year old if this was a 55 year old bodybuilder 
who's just got asthma, I would probably give them about 15 mils to start with and then start titrating. So obviously you have to work with the patient and to see how sick the patient looks. But for a 78-year-old frail patient, I would give 50, mils, uh, 50 milligrams as a bonus and then start titrating slowly. And you touched on it briefly. What's your cue for then giving the sucks? Uh, as soon as the patient starts closing their eyes. Some people would argue that after the patient closes their eyes, you should give them a little bit more. My counter argument to that is that propofol is going to take about 20 to 30 seconds after you've injected it to start working. Mm -hmm. So when the patient closes their eyes, unless your last bolus of propofol was more than 30 seconds ago, you've given more propofol since, and so they will be deeper in a few seconds anyway. The second thing people are, the, the, the reason people are worried about not having enough propofol or enough hypnotic on board is they are worried about awareness. Right. This is the re really bad thing where patients have had an anesthetic or actually worse, they've had a muscle relaxant, but they are still awake and they can remember this. And that can cause really real long term psychological problems in patients. However, what we know is that the incidence of awareness is low in most people, but the rapid sequence induction is a major risk factor for awareness. But if the patient is very sick, if they're very acidotic, if they've got lots of problems, if they've got a pneumonia, they're septic, they are much, much less likely to remain aware of this. Also, they are then going to intensive care where we are not aiming to keep them fully anesthetized. They will be under conscious sedation, and as we've talked about before, they will probably get delirious. They will probably get some nightmares. They're at a high risk of getting PTSD anyway. And I haven't seen any literature that says doing a rapid sequence induction in these patients significantly increases their incidence of delirium or awareness. So I would be conservative with the use of hypnotics. So we've given the sucks. What are we waiting for? After we've given the sucks, you can do one of two things. You can wait for 60 seconds, which is classical teaching, or you could wait for fasciculations because we know that sucks is a depolarizing muscle relaxant. So it causes a brief period of muscle contraction before it paralyzes the muscles. So you will have a wave of what we call twitching. So you will probably be able to uh, see the arms and the legs twitching and once the twitching stops you know the patient's paralyzed uh, of course it is sometimes difficult to see twitching in old frail patients much easier to see it in young muscular patients let's assume because this is this podcast isn't about the process of intubation it's about the drugs that you give so let's assume that our intubation has gone smoothly your tube is now in you're connected to the ventilator we're done now aren't we we can walk away we don't need to think about any more drugs do we you have to keep the patient asleep with something. And I would hope that in your pre-intubation checklist, and I would hope that you have gone through your pre-intubation checklist, you would have a box that says drugs to keep the patient asleep. Now, drugs to keep the patient asleep could be, will definitely be a hypnotic. And the second agent will probably be an opioid. And sometimes you may need a third agent, which would be a muscle relaxant. Okay, so we need those drugs. Yes. Right, well done. Unfortunately, the patient next door now also needs our help. Okay. So can I tell you about this patient? Shoot. 
This is a gentleman that's come in. He has known severe asthma and he's almost been defined as a brittle asthmatic, almost but not quite. This time he's come in and whatever we've given him doesn't seem to be helping. He's had the steroids, he's had the back-to-back nebulizers. He's still not oxygenating terribly well and it doesn't seem to matter what we do. From what we can see, the consultant's now told you that he suspects this patient is in uh, severe bronchospasm and we're struggling to actually deal with it. Somebody in the meantime is drawing up some Ventolin for you to give intravenously, but the saturations are now down in the sort of 65, 70, almost becoming meaningless reading numbers. The patient's looking blue, looks like they're going to struggle ultimately. Where are we going with this patient? What drugs do you want from me? This one, uh, my personal practice is to use ketamine to intubate bronchial asthma. Ketamine is probably the most underrated induction agent we have. It works beautifully. It is relatively more cardiostable than the other induction agents. It is, I admit, slightly slower than, say, thiopentone uh, and may actually if you give it to well patients, cause a degree of psychological disturbances, the so-called dissociative anesthesia and bad trips, hallucinations. However, as I said before, it seems to be remarkably trouble-free for intensive care patients. So for uh, critically ill patients, it doesn't seem to cause any of those psychological effects, or if it does, they get masked in the general psychological effects of intensive care anyway. So, Mm. and it is Great for preserving laryngeal reflexes, uh, airway reflexes, for helping with bronchospasm and for helping with cardiostability. So my drug of choice here would definitely be ketamine. How are you going to give it? Is it, is it two milligrams per kilo we're giving here? or? Yeah, again, one of my principles for rapid sequence induction is to not do a rapid sequence induction ever but to always modify it and slow it down and uh, titrate to effect. So I would be tempted to give a milligram per kilo of ketamine, wait a few seconds, then give a little bit more, another 0.2 milligrams per kilo, then wait another 20 seconds, give another 0.2 milligrams per kilo. So how are you drawing that up? Uh, because obviously it's, it's easier just to say give two, three mils. How are you drawing that up to make it easy for the u- for user? What I would do is I would draw up 200 milligrams of ketamine into 20 mils. Mm-hmm. And then assuming, so that then gives you uh, 10 milligrams per kilo. So for a 70 kilo person, you give seven mils in the first go and then you give one and a half to two mils boluses uh, subsequently as, uh, while you're titrating. So every mil equates to 10 milligrams, which makes it nice and simple then, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, okay. So you're titrating to effect very similar to the way that you've done the propofol then, Absolutely. really. And are you looking for a similar effect with ketamine? Are they closing their eyes? I mean, if it's dissociative, then presumably they're not necessarily closing their they eyes. They don't always. Sometimes they just roll their eyes. And yep. it is sometimes, some people say that they find it really difficult to tell when a patient's gone to sleep with ketamine. But mm. I find that if you just wait for them to roll their eyes, so sometimes mm. they'll close their eyes, sometimes their eyes will just roll up and they will, not, they will stop focusing. Yeah. And that normally tells you that they're not with it anymore. So they've 
they are in some stage of anesthesia. It's hard to tell how deep they are. And if this was for an, for an elective procedure in a fit, healthy young patient, I would worry as well because I wouldn't know exactly how deep they were before I gave them the muscle relaxant. Yeah. For our patient population, so for this particular patient who's got asthma, who's got low SATs, uh, and then you give him ketamine, it is almost sure that he is deep enough to then go ahead and give the sucks to. And you say the ketamine has a bronchodilatory effect as well, yes, is that right? Yes, absolutely, yeah. yes. Ketamine's great for bronchospasm. Sometimes, uh, generally, you don't, it, it doesn't work with just one single dose. You have to give an infusion. But uh, starting with ketamine is a great start anyway. Okay, so if the if the patient still remains difficult to ventilate, then you'd think about giving a ketamine infusion at that point, would you? Without doubt, yes. Yeah, okay. Um, so now we've given the ketamine, are we carrying on with sucks or are we going to give something else? Uh, I would give sucks. Okay, uh, once again, because it's fast acting, etc. Yes, et cetera, et cetera. absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I would just give sucks because it is, again, uh, in terms of rapid sequence, it's the muscle relaxant that I have the most experience with. Even though now that we've got a reversal agent for rocuronium, we could use rocuronium. Uh, and I have when we, there was a reason not to use the sucks. But actually, sucks is cheap, effective, quick. We know how it works. And everyone has lots of experience using sucks for rapid sequence inductions. So there doesn't seem to be a reason not to use it as the first choice. Okay. Presumably, though, you, you're not going to be using sucks if there's a history of them having had a, a, an RSI very recently. Is that another reason not to use sucks? How recently? Uh, let's say in the last two or three days, for example, as they often do in ITU. Having had an RSI recently isn't really a reason not to use sucks. Having okay. had a, a critical illness and having been on ITU for a few days, theoretically, does put you at risk of having had extra junctional receptors expressed so that you're more likely to respond with hyperkalemia. Also, right. if, you're, if you've been on ITU for a few days, most of our patients uh, have some degree of AKI and therefore they, they are again at risk of going into hyperkalemia. So that would be, that, that would be a potential reason not to give sucks. Okay. So you've got to bear in mind, are they allergic to it? Have they ever had sucks apnea? Or is there some kidney problem um, that may be iatrogenic because of what we've been doing to them or their illness generally has been doing to them when we consider using sucks? But when in doubt, give them sucks. Yes. Is that what can, you would say? Generally, yes. Can I just add two more things to that? Yes. So other things I would add to that are if you have a patient who's had crush injuries, so road, road traffic accident with crush injuries, yep or burns that are deep enough to have burned muscle. Right, because of the rhabdomyolysis, the release of potassium, yes. that kind of thing. Is that yes. Right? Yeah. Okay. All right. That's the other one I would be careful of. And that's the one that I have been previously caught out with. Okay. Right. You've rescued yet another one, Nitin. I'm, I'm very impressed so far. You're having a busy afternoon, though, because the, um, the uh, registrar then calls you and says that they've got yet another patient who unfortunately has come in with a pretty severe sepsis. Uh, we have a blood pressure that's down in their socks. Uh, we've gone through the fluid regime. We've given as much fluid as we dare. 
Um, we're almost considering now things like metraminol um, because the blood pressure still isn't responding to the fluids anymore. The patient looking very shut down. So clearly they're very, very septic. And as a consequence, um, we're, we're quite worried that um, their GCS is dropping um, and the decision has been made that maybe intubation might be the wise option so we can get them up, get them on CVVH and manage them properly. What's your drugs of choice for this patient? Right. Um, if you'd asked me this question 12 years ago, I'd have responded very confidently saying etomidate. That's what all of my consultants use. Okay. Unfortunately, as we know, etomidate causes a degree of adrenal suppression and uh, even though single doses haven't been linked with increased death rate, only infusions have, uh, I don't think there's very many people around that would advocate etomidate in this situation. So mm -hmm. once again, we're in a situation where we need to do a rapid sequence in a patient uh, who is likely uh, to collapse cardiovascularly as soon as you give any induction agent. So your choice is, again, the same three induction agents, thio, propofol, or ketamine. Now, my personal choice would again be to go for the ketamine rather than thio or propofol. But in this instance, I would probably want to have a metraminol infusion running or metraminol available to give us boluses even before we start giving any drugs. Because the mm -hmm. blood pressure is already low, the patient's already vasodilated, even though ketamine is more cardio uh, cardiovascularly stable than other drugs, it is still going to cause a small degree of vasodilatation. And even that small degree may not be well tolerated by this patient, who may then collapse and we would be in big, big trouble. So so what, what advantage does thio have over propofol? Thio redistributes quickly. Uh, so, so there, there's actually two or three big advantages of thio over propofol. The first one is that thio works very, very quickly. So theoretically, thio will work in one arm brain circulation time, which was classically described as 11 seconds. Though mm. in a shutdown patient, it's probably going to be more like 30 seconds. But mm. thio works much faster than propofol. You are less likely to give too much by mistake. So if you're titrating the dose, you will actually give enough rather than too much. Because you're not going to overshoot. You, you're you're, you're less likely to overshoot. And the other advantage is that thio um, doesn't accumulate in if you give it as a one-shot injection. If you give it as... Um, so it, so it, it actually redistributes and wears off a little bit faster than propofol. The third advantage is thio is the only drug that's licensed for use in rapid sequence induction in pregnancy. And the fourth big advantage is in patients with status epilepticus, because thio is probably one of the best anti-epileptics known to us. Whereas propofol, while it does have an anti-epileptic effect, isn't really as good as thio. Right. Okay. So um, we're going to give um, ketamine, you've decided. Yes. Okay. And once again, we're going to use sucks from what you've already discussed? Yes, uh, unless the, there is a reason. So if the patient, for instance, had documented uh, sucks allergy or suspected sucks allergy in the past, uh, we could then use rocuronium. Okay. 
And once this patient is sedated and ventilated and all the rest of it, presumably once you've got your metraminol infusion in place, um, in order to um, maximise our drug input, we're then going to start thinking about things like central lines, etc., aren't we? Absolutely. Without doubt, we would have to. Yeah. Okay. I, I think that's that's your viva over, Nitin. I think you've done very well there. I'm quite impressed. <laughs> Thank you, Jonathan. Um, I, think, I think you'll go on for a long, <laughs> illustrious career. Um, thanks, thanks Nitin. I think that's, that's genuinely been really helpful. I think my audience will enjoy that a lot. So there you go. Thanks, Nitin. That was very helpful. I hope you found it helpful as well to clear up some of the mysteries behind the drugs that we use in the RSI. Um, certainly it helped clarify some of my thinking and it's important to remember of course that oxygen also is a drug as Nitin said right at the beginning there and to realize the necessity for it so that's me done for this one Uh, I know I haven't been around for a little while I've had a bit of a summer break I'm now working at Warwick Hospital really excited to be there I'm back in intensive care I've left A&E it wasn't for me so back in Warwick ITU we've got the Intensive Care Society conference coming up in December so that's going to be upon us very quickly please consider coming along it's a top program that Ganesh has put together for us all for those allied health professionals it's £190 and I know you've got accommodation and trains and things to sort out but £190 for three days for a top quality conference I think is really good value for money so if you are going to consider coming to one um, I think this is one that you should try and attend and I'd love to meet more of you if you can be there as well there is some focus on some of the stuff that us allied health professionals do as well as all the doctory stuff so very very valuable we've got somebody coming from mclaren we've got somebody coming from google we've got kevin fong who presented this year's uh christmas lectures from the royal society um on tv on bbc so we've got some very very um esteemed speakers so it would be great if you would come along that's it from me now I hope I can get my frequency back up because I know it's been a couple of months since I've done a podcast. I hope you're all well and I'll speak to you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Critical Care Practitioner. If you would like to comment on any of today's topics, find us at criticalcarepractitioner.co.uk, tweet us at ccpractitioner, find us at facebook.com slash criticalcarepractitioner, or search Critical Care Practitioner on iTunes.